Good morning again. Okay, well, if you want to take your Bibles, um, we are going to finish this uh, series this morning that we started, I guess, seven weeks ago, um, a series this summer on the Holy Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit. And so this morning, we're going to focus on the relationship between the Holy Spirit and the mission, uh, the mission of Jesus. So, so just think with me here for a minute. Um, when you hear, hear the term mission, if, if you think about how that term is used in our world, mission or missions, um, what do you think of? What are the connotations? What are the things that come to mind when you hear uh, mission or missions? There's lots of companies that have mission statements. Some of them actually really help to focus what that company is all about, what they do. Some, it's just on the, it's on the wall and it's never really referred to again. Maybe you think of the Blues Brothers. We're on a mission from God. Anybody? I mean, come on. Just, okay, thank you. I was striking out with some of those cultural references um, a couple weeks ago. Um, maybe for some of you, missions could conjure up some creepy connotations. You know, people knocking on your door and you try to turn the lights out quick and pretend you're not home. Um, it could be that you think that that's arrogant, that somebody else is going to try to tell me what to believe. Like, what right do you have? There's lots of roads, you know, of spirituality, and who are you to say that yours is any better than mine? And so, what are you doing? This is like some kind of, yeah, bigoted whatever. You got the only, you're proud and arrogant. Is that what it is? Um, you know, we actually use this language a whole lot more than you think. It's obviously used in military con contexts, right? Missions. Um, people go on a mission, the military. Sometimes people are on a mission to raise awareness or funds or support for everything from breast cancer to buying local to saving the whales to saving the environment, etc. Some of you have gone on a mission to get some article of clothing for your outfit. Um, so lots of ways these words are used, but one thing that maybe is worth taking into consideration as we dive into God's Word here is usually being on a mission involves three things. You've been sent you have a purpose or a goal, you could say, and you're motivated and equipped. You're ready to go. You're ready to fulfill your purpose. So before we get to us and our involvement in the mission, what about Jesus? Did Jesus have a mission? He was sent by his Father. God's, the Father so loved the world that he gave. Okay, he, he sent his only Son on a mission. He had a purpose. He had a goal to rescue people that were lost. And you could say that he was equipped because he was God. I mean, if he could have pulled his robe apart, there probably would have been, you know, like a, an S there for son of God, you know, right? No. At the baptism of Jesus, when he actually was going public with his ministry, what happened? the Spirit came down like a dove and empowered him. He was a real man. 
He was fully God and fully man, and that's a crazy mystery, but he really was fully man, and he needed to be empowered for his ministry just like we need to be empowered for what God calls us to do. So he was sent, he had a goal, and he was equipped. So if, if you were living in the time of Jesus, he laid out clearly what some of his goals, his purposes were. Um, we don't have the slides this morning because we needed to move the screen, so there's a an outline in your bulletin um, if you want to follow along that way. Um, But again, as we focus first on the mission of Jesus, when he first started preaching and teaching, he went to his hometown, Nazareth. And he went to the synagogue just like any other Jew would at the time. And he was kind of a growing leader. And he grew up here. And here's the hometown boy. And he's going to teach us. And he opened the scroll And he read from Isaiah 61, and here's what he read and what happened. If you want to turn in the Bible, you can follow along, because we're going to be looking at Luke and Acts. Luke wrote both of those. And um, so if you turn to Luke 4, you'll be close to most of the text we're going to look at this morning. If you're using the Pew Bible, if you don't have a Bible, no problem. There's one in the Pew in front of you. It's the black book there, and you can find this passage on page 860. So Luke 4, 18, what was the mission of Jesus? What was his purpose? Why did he come? So he gets up, and he's reading the scripture. He's quoting, he's reading from Isaiah 61, and it said this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And that would be poor in broader than just an economic sense. Um, weak and needy in a, in a holistic sense. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, his welcome. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, because back then they would sit down when they taught. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, which was a pretty crazy claim. In other words, that prophecy from Isaiah 61, I'm here. So I've come to proclaim good news, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the Lord's welcome. So that language of good news actually... I mean, we talk about that a lot as Christians, the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Well, it actually finds its origins in military contexts, okay? So, so imagine back in the ancient Near East, you have two kingdoms that are at war with each other. They meet in some middle location to fight the battle. And back then, if you were a kingdom, you had your God. So it wasn't just a a battle of flesh and blood. It was also like, whose God is more powerful? Who's going to win here? Okay, so these armies meet on the battlefield. There's obviously no on-site reporters with sat links, you know, to, to pipe the, you know, how the battle's going back to the other country. There's no video. There's no email. There's no phone. So when the battle was won, you sent a runner. And then there were people, watchmen on the walls that would watch the horizon And you would know when the feet running out at the horizon were bringing good news. You could tell. And when they were, man, those were beautiful feet. Because they were bringing really good news. 
that the battle's won, and our God reigns, okay? So when God demonstrated his love and sent Jesus to this world, Jesus willingly took on flesh and blood, became a man. He didn't just come so he could teach us some things because we were merely ignorant. We are ignorant. We needed his teaching. He taught a lot, and it was great, and it's preserved for us. But he didn't just come to teach us. He came to actually win a battle. His enemies were sin, death, and Satan. So you can understand a bit of what Jesus was up against, okay? And let me just give you a, a sense of, of what this battle looked like for God to be victorious, to conquer. Like, what does it mean for, for Jesus to have an enemy called sin? Well, some of you may have heard this story before, but others maybe not. So this, this will kind of illustrate the point. How did Jesus have to conquer sin? What was the struggle there? Well, there once was this wonderfully wise and benevolent king, and he was well thought of throughout his kingdom, and he was just and kind, and he was strong and tender, and the kingdom prospered in every way under his leadership. Um, But one day, it was discovered that someone had been stealing from the royal treasury. Okay, so there's this announcement that's made, and people are shocked because, I mean, I know in our day and age, um, really high approval ratings with with political leadership, you know, maybe we don't have a good sense of that, but imagine you're in a country where, you know, it's just people would be shocked if there was someone stealing from the royal treasury because of the high esteem that this king was kept in, okay? How could they do this? So the punishment was issued as well in hopes of discouraging the thief from continuing, but the theft continued and the punishment was actually increased. And, you know, it's happening multiple times and, you know, finally the the punishment is, is brought up to 40 lashes, which could actually kill a person. It's just a, you know, dangerously close. So two days after that, the thief was caught. And it turned out, some of you have heard this story, that it was the king's mother. And so the king is obviously distraught, and he asks for a couple days to just think about what to do here. He loved his mother, but the law was the law. He was just and loving. So how could both of those commitments coexist? So the day comes, the mother's brought out. I mean, the law has to be upheld. You you can't just dismiss it. You're going to end up with anarchy. Does it really not matter? You're going to be, you know, favoritism, you know. So the mother's brought out to be flogged. Her arms are strapped to the pole. The soldier who loves his king and even the mother, you know, he has to steel himself against this rising pity and this older woman. He raises the whip and the king yells for the soldier to stop. And he runs and he takes off his robe and he takes off his shirt and he encompasses his mother, wraps himself around her, and then he says, now begin. And so he took all 40 of those lashes for his mother. Now, I know that illustration breaks down left, right, and center, okay? So don't try to press it beyond the point. What it does illustrate clearly is the fact that justice was satisfied by love so that both could be exercised, okay? 
So that's the only way that sin, this enemy of sin, could be conquered and dealt with. Okay, so let's say, like, we're all sinners. Like, we're all guilty before our creator, cosmic judge. There's no appeals in this court. We're all going to die one day and face judgment. So it's, we're not just worm food. So let's say that happens today or next week or next month or whenever. If you were standing before God the judge, would you want justice or mercy? Well, I think most of us would want mercy because we know we haven't been perfect. We know we haven't kept even our own standards, let alone if there is a God keeping his standards. So if mercy, on what basis? Some cosmic, you know, grandfather in the sky, just, you know, sweep it under the rug? No, that's not just. So do you have someone to take the sentence you deserve, to pay the debt you owe, to deal with the consequences of how you've fallen short, how I've fallen short? So remember how I said Jesus didn't just come to teach us what we didn't know. He came to win a battle. His enemies were sin, death, and Satan. So he came to defeat the power of sin. So we're all bent and broken. You don't have to teach two-year-olds to disobey. We do it quite naturally. He came to defeat the enemy of our souls, Satan, who tempted us in the first place and keeps trying to sell the lies like God's holding out on us and he's this cosmic killjoy and if you really, really want to find life, go find it elsewhere. And he came to conquer death, which is such good news that he didn't just die in our place if he stayed in the ground. So what? Well, thanks, but... So he did go through hell on the cross, the hell that we deserve, so that we wouldn't have to. He took the lashes, and in so doing, he stomped on the serpent's head and crushed it. He defanged Satan. All his accusations. Do any of you have voices in your head that accuse you? Whether it came from your parent you don't measure up, or maybe some failure in your past or whatever, Satan loves to just magnify those. Just wag the finger at you so that you just condemn yourself. Well, guess what? Jesus came, stomped to Satan's head, deal with sin, so that Romans 8, 1 could be true. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because God sweeps stuff under the rug? No, but because Jesus paid for it so that God could be just and he could set us free and justify us. So Romans 8.31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's chosen ones? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So He didn't just die, not only that, three days later, three days in case that throws you off, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. It wasn't intended to be, to to say that it was three 24-hour periods, it's just Friday was the first day, Saturday was the second day, rose on the third day, okay? So Jesus rose from the dead, (laughs) which is crazy. (laughs) And it's either like, you Christians... Like, what am I doing in here? I don't want to drink the Kool-Aid and get... Or, if this is true, it changes everything. I mean, like, you want to live, right? You don't want to die. We all hate death. But we will all lose to death in the end. 
and we fear it. We're often enslaved by that fear. And weren't we made to live? Who can win that battle for us? I mean, we can try. I mean, you just look around us in advertising, and so many people are just like slaves because they're trying through exercise or diet or vitamins or anti-aging cream and on and on and on and on to try to live as long as they possibly can. And nothing wrong with some of those things, but um, the grave's going to win unless God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So Lindy was made alive. And many in this room, you know, we were like cut flowers, cut off from life source, cut off from relationship with God. And when we're reunited and reconciled to God, we, we come alive again. Now, we're still going to die. But one day, like, but our spirit's going to go be with Jesus in heaven, and then one day Jesus is going to come back and make everything new. New creation, new bodies. God likes bodies, matter, stuff. It's not just floating around in ethereal, you know, with wings and harps and such. It's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. That's the picture in the Bible. That's the very good ending, which is really the very good beginning. So, how does the reality of the gospel grip? How did it grip the early disciples, the followers of Jesus? Well, flip ahead in the gospel of Luke to Luke 24. And look how the gospel gripped some of these early disciples, these followers of Jesus. This is after the resurrection, before Jesus ascended. He did that thing, the road um, to Emmaus with those two guys and opened their minds to understand the scriptures So, look at 2445. He basically said, listen, you've got to see how all of the Old Testament was pointing to me. And then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that, here's your mission, that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in Jesus' name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So the resurrection was essential and their minds being open to see, oh, this was what was in God's plan all along. That was essential to the, those early disciples really believing, really seeing the person and purposes of Jesus. So they didn't think Jesus was going to raise from the dead. They thought when he died, like, their hopes were dashed. This was not what they were thinking. They thought it was all over. But Jesus rose from the dead, and he's saying, you can't be my witnesses until you've witnessed who I am and my purposes and my plan. You're not going to go proclaim things you don't believe are true. You've got to see and believe if you're going to share but even that wasn't enough. Jesus wanted them to be even more ready and equipped before they headed out on his mission. So look at verse 49. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. You will not, you must not be a faithful, you won't be a faithful witness until you're clothed with power. So you, you've got to have the Spirit if you're going to share faithfully like I want you to witness. So let's look now at Luke's sequel, okay? 
and show how this was fulfilled in the book of Acts. And we'll see the power for witness in chapter 1. Pastor Tyler read this passage. But let's look at it again and and walk through it a little bit here. So Acts 1.1. In the first book, O Theophilus, okay, so Luke was writing to an individual, or it could have been a symbolic name for anyone who was interested in examining the claims of Christ. Theophilus would mean God lover. Um, So most likely it was a real person. So in the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. Did you ever stop and say, I wonder why that word began is in there? (laughs) You notice that? What might the significance of that be? In other words, Jesus began his ministry on earth. He's ascending and he's going to continue his ministry. So all the acts of the apostles that happen in the book of Acts are still the acts of Jesus. He's active among his people, in and through his people. So he began to do it and teach it when he was on planet earth, but he's going to continue. So again, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Okay, so he appeared multiple times, sometimes to individuals, sometimes to big groups, even at one point a group of 500 so that it would be really clear that nobody's having a hallucination and whatever. So he's speaking to them about the kingdom of God, which is the the rule and reign of God. Like, if you want to talk about the kind of government you long for, this is it, with God as the king. But we reject him, and so so much of this world has rejected him, and that's why things are such a mess. So... While staying with them, verse 4, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. That sounds a lot like what we just saw in Luke 24, right? Wait till you're clothed with power from on high. He ordered them to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, John the Baptist, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Okay? Um, Washed over. Immersed in the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. So when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They still are thinking, you're just going to throw off these Roman oppressors. We're so tired of being under their thumb. You could set us free and give us political freedom and all that. And they still don't get that he's talking about a spiritual kingdom that he's bringing one heart at a time. So he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, so don't believe anybody that says that, you know, Jesus is coming back on whatever day in 2017 or whatever. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. So look at this here. Do you see the connection between the question in verse 6 And the answer, there's one answer in verse 7, but then there's another answer in verse 8. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom? And he says, not for you to know timing, but you will bring the kingdom. 
Do you see it? Here's how the kingdom's going to come. It's going to come through you. I'm going to empower you so that you can be my witnesses and tell people the good news of the gospel so that they can be set free just like you were. And it's going to happen in Jerusalem. That's like the closest in. In fact, this is almost like a table of contents for the book of Acts. First seven chapters, ministry in Jerusalem. Then persecution happens and they start spreading out further. Samaria, Judea, Samaria. They start spreading the gospel where they go and then to the ends of the earth. At that time, places like Rome and Spain, and Paul's talking about going there. So before Jesus ascended, he promised the Holy Spirit would come and the Spirit did come at Pentecost. So let's look thirdly here at Pentecost, Acts 2. So it's probably on the same page there. Um, just look down to chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, which, again, for these Jews was a, one of the major annual festivals or feasts, okay? it took place 50 days after Passover. That's why it's Pentecost 50th. That's really all that word means. Okay, so it's 50 days after Passover. And so they're all together in one place, all these early disciples. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. So have you ever heard a tornado? Have you ever heard a hurricane? There's a sound to it. And so it wasn't necessarily a tornado or a hurricane. It just sounded like that. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And this is crazy, it's weird, but it happened. Divided tongues as of fire. So their hair wasn't on fire. It wasn't really fire, but it was like fire. <laughs> so he's trying to find something to describe like what's going on. Well, it was kind of like these tongues of fire over their heads. Rested on each one of them. So in the Old Testament, what are some of the associations with fire? Burning bush. It's God's presence. Pillar of fire leading the Israelites out of Egypt, God's presence. So if the Spirit is being poured out on God's people, God's presence coming down in a very powerful way, resting on his people. And so, verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, other languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. They would come back for these festivals, just like do a little pilgrimage, okay? But they're spread out all over the place. They speak different languages because they've kind of assumed some of the language and culture of some of these places. So verse 6, at this sound, the multitude came together. They were bewildered. So if, if you're bewildered this morning as we read this, you're not alone. They were too, okay? Because each one was hearing them speak in his own language, and they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Okay, so just for what this is worth, that's kind of a funny thing, but you miss it. You don't know, like, the mindset of a first century Jew. If you were from Galilee, it's kind of like you're a redneck. <laughs> okay, seriously. And if you're from the South, no, <laughs> no offense. You know, Tyler wouldn't take offense at this, and I can take some cheap shots at him. It's, it's a lot of fun. Um, you can do that, too. Obviously, Tyler's a very sharp guy. But, but, you know, there's like this redneck caricature. Well, that was kind of like Galilee. Oh, well, they're from Galilee. So, but that's the point. 
how could they be speaking different languages? You know, rednocks are not typically known for their linguistic skill and ability, okay? So how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? And then it goes on to list where all these people were from all over the place. And what were they saying? What were they saying in these tongues, these different languages? We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. That's missions. Because everybody needs to know how God sent his son on a mission and he was victorious and he conquered all his enemies and there's really good news and we need to tell everybody. So they were all amazed and perplexed saying, what does this mean? But others mocked them saying, ah, they're just drunk. So the point is that they were empowered and it was really obvious that they were empowered because how could, how could rednecks... <laughs> Speak in different languages, just that, like that. Now, here's the other thing. What's Pentecost all about? It was the festival celebrating harvest. So yes, 50 days after Passover, think about it. This is beautiful. Jesus died around Passover because he was showing himself for 40 days. So the Lamb of God died at Passover to rescue us from the wrath of God, his just opposition to our sins, so to conquer those enemies. And then he pours out his spirit at Pentecost because it would be by the power of the spirit that he would gather in like a harvest people from every tribe and tongue and nation. So Jesus came to seek and save the lost and his people follow him and they seek to share that good news, that life-giving message to those who are wandering far from God and need to come home, like Lindy was just talking about. So if we're going to do that, I'm not so good in my own strength. I don't have like a golden tongue and, and I'm totally fit. I need power if I'm going to do that. It's easy to be afraid what other people will think of you. In some parts of the world, you'll risk your life if you try to share this news with somebody. And you risk their life if they actually become a Christian. So we need the presence and the power of the Spirit. We need the filling of the Spirit. Sometimes we're just so pick and selfish that, you know what, we wouldn't even want to say hi to somebody new outside of a fake fire drill. We just grumble, 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 and then go back in. Stupid people, mechanical failure. You know? <laughs> well, maybe God wants to just talk to somebody. Because he's got something like this lined up that we just heard about in the testimony from Lindy. So we need the presence and power of the Spirit, the filling of the Spirit. So fourth point, be filled. Pentecost was the first time that the Spirit was poured out like this, a unique event. We today don't need, like as Christians, we don't need to wait exactly like they did because every Christian is given the Spirit of God at conversion. Okay, you're given new birth. New spirit dwells within you. You're made new from the inside out. Okay, but that doesn't mean that we don't need to be dependent and relying on the Lord for the Spirit's filling and power like they did. Because okay, we can easily get selfish and, and cold toward God and get more excited about lesser things. And so how are we filled? Ongoing basis by the Spirit if we're going to be on mission with Jesus. Well, probably several things can be said. But let me just say a few things, probably just two. Ephesians 5 
language of being filled by the Spirit. It says in Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Okay? So if you're drunk, you're under the influence. Right? That's obvious. The alcohol is controlling you. So how do you get drunk? You drink a bunch of wine or whatever else. So how do you get controlled by the Spirit, filled with the Spirit? You drink a lot of the Spirit. How do you do that? Well, later on in the same book, Ephesians chapter 6, talks about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And the Spirit loves to fill us up with the, the truths of the gospel, the Word of God, that it's so real in us that it grips us. Okay? So, that's one way. We need to drink in God's Word, drink in the gospel every day, meditate on it so that we are filled up with all this grace and truth and we're ready to share when the opportunities present themselves. Secondly, oftentimes emptying, and and actually when we were talking about this as leaders in one of our elders meetings, Bill mentioned this, and I remember writing it down, and so he's not here this morning because he's having to work, but uh, thank Bill for this point. It's a good reminder. Emptying oftentimes precedes filling. So, you know, filling and emptying go together. What is filling you up? Oftentimes we get filled up on other things. We, we start to seek our satisfaction and joy in life and we, we focus on other things, lesser things. And then we just kind of lose our taste for the things of God. We don't want to be on mission with Jesus because we're too busy focusing on, you know, whatever else. So what is filling you up? What do you want to be filled up with? Where do you think fullness is to be found? Is that idea coming from the Spirit or from, you know, our selfish inclinations in the world around us? So what are you feeding? What are you starving? Every day we're going to be doing those things. We're going to be feeding something, starving something. So we need to starve our selfish impulses and feed this hunger for the Word of God, the Gospel by the Spirit. So imagine it this way. Let me just make that practical. Um, Imagine you're just a slave. Have you ever gone through a season like this? Slave to anxiety or, or fear. You're just spinning. You wake up in the morning, bzzz, you know, and you're so afraid of all the what ifs, what ifs, what ifs, what ifs. You go through life and opportunities to love somebody, tell somebody about Jesus comes along. You're not thinking, you're not ready for that because you're just thinking about all the stuff that you're afraid of. So you're full of that and you've got no power to be on mission with Jesus. Or what about lust? If you're full of that, you're not going to be looking to bless other people. So what is it that's filling you? And um, what are you hungry for? So when we're filled with the Spirit, things happen. Do you know what happens when people get filled with the Spirit? There's a pattern in Acts. And again, I told you we'd look at Luke and Acts here. We just looked at a little bit of chapter 1, chapter 2. Flip ahead to Acts chapter 4 and look at verse 8. <clears throat> As we uh, start to wrap things up here. So Acts 4, 8. Then Peter, here it is, filled with the Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit. What did he do? He said something. So the Spirit empowered him 
to talk about the gospel. And so here he starts talking. Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, say it just healed a man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you, I mean, if that's why you're examining us, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name, like this power is not resident in us, we're not, you know, the impressive ones, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, wow, there's some boldness, where'd that come from, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Do you see it? Once again, what's up with these Galileans? How can this be? Well, not just Peter. It happens with The church in general, it's not just these super kind of apostle types. Look at Acts 4.31. So the church is gathered together. They start praying because of what God is doing and the persecution that's rising. And look at 4.31. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So just a little plug, by the way, that's one of the reasons why we're praying. 9 a.m., if you were here for the breakfast, one of our Sunday school classes is just going to be prayer. So next Sunday, 154, all the way down by the gym, join us for prayer. Don't you want that to happen? That we would all be emboldened to such a degree that we would be willing and able to speak the word of God with boldness, not be afraid. I mean, what should we expect? Why, why don't we expect this? I love this quote. This is the book of the month. If you haven't gotten it, it's great. Um, the end of the series, so I'm going to plug it one more time here. Francis Chan, Forgotten God. This is great. Here's what he says. <clears throat> um, if it's true that the Spirit of God dwells in us and that our bodies are the Holy Spirit's temple, then shouldn't there be a huge difference between the person who has the Spirit of God living inside him, him or her and the person who does not? This may be a silly illustration, but if I told you I had an encounter with God where he entered my body and gave me a supernatural ability to play basketball, wouldn't you expect to see an amazing improvement in my jump shot, my defense, and my speed on the court? After all, this is God we're talking about. And if you saw no change in my athleticism, wouldn't, it, wouldn't you question the validity of my encounter? Churchgoers all across the nation say the Holy Spirit has entered them. They claim that God has given them a supernatural ability to follow Christ, put their sin to death, and serve the church. Christians talk about being born again and say that they were dead, but now they have come to life. We've become hardened to those words, but they're powerful words that have significant meaning. Yet when those outside the church see no difference in our lives, they begin to question our integrity, our sanity, or even worse, our God. And can you blame them? So that could be really convicting, but the whole point is not to just kick you like, you're pathetic. You know, instead it's, This is what the Spirit of God can do. Shouldn't we have expectations in line with God's Word rather than, you know, downsizing what God can do? So finally, what does it look like to keep in step with the Spirit? We need to be filled by the Spirit, and if we do, we're going to be willing to to talk about Jesus. 
because we want other people to know him. But if we're keeping in step with the Spirit, that's the title of the series, so we're going to end where we began. If this is what we want, if we want to keep in step with the Spirit, where's he going to lead us? If you individually want to keep in step with the Spirit, again, there's lots of ways to answer that question, but part of the answer is this, that he's going to lead you to be on mission with Jesus. Now, if you think, what can I do? Like, I'm shy. I'm this. I'm that. I don't, I don't want to, like, bumble and fumble and give them one more excuse to think Christians are idiots. Remember the rednecks, okay? And you know what? If you don't say it as clear as you want, you know, like, it doesn't ultimately, re- God doesn't rely on you, like, oh, if you'd have said that better, I could have saved them. You know, like, he can use us. He's always used weak, imperfect people like us, okay? But, but listen, this is so encouraging. Um, the other book I've been plugging is the one by J.D. Greer, Jesus Continued. And you remember the story of, of Philip in Acts 8, where he, you know, things were really going along, lots of great ministry, and then the Lord told him to go to Samaria, okay? So he's like out in the middle of nowhere, he just left all this active ministry. You can imagine, like, what, what am I doing out here? And Holy Spirit told Philip to go get up next to a chariot that was going along. Remember this story? And just happened to be that the guy in the chariot is this Ethiopian eunuch, kind of a, a palace court official who had come to Jerusalem to worship God. He obviously had some interest in in you know, this God of the Bible and who is this? And he's reading Isaiah 53 where it talks about the lamb that was slain. And Philip gets up next to it and hears what he's reading and he goes, hey, <laughs> do you know what you're reading? How, do, how am I going to know if somebody, did, somebody doesn't explain it to me? And so listen to what J.D. Greer says in response to that. Ancient church historian Eusebius tells us this eunuch and his band of servants became the first messengers of the gospel to Africa, establishing the first church there. Philip planted seeds of the gospel in sub-Saharan Africa that we are still harvesting today. All this took place through one simple act of obedience, not one that looks strategic by our measure, but a spirit-directed investment. Philip had, had placed the five loaves and two fish of his witness in the hands of Jesus, and Jesus multiplied it beyond his wildest imagination. God can do more through one simple act of obedience than we can do through our most extravagant plans. So, you want to be on mission with Jesus? You never know. There might be a fire drill this week. And the Lord has somebody that he wants you to talk to. So, if you want to be on mission with Jesus, then this is where the Spirit's going to lead us. And if we as a church want to keep in step with the Spirit, then that means that the Lord's going to lead us as a church on mission with Jesus. The Spirit is not going to lead us into all safety, into all comfort, away from risk. No. Like, the Spirit's not going to lead us into our comfort zone, getting away from suffering and risk and whatever. No. We, we're going to lay our lives down just like Jesus did in order that other people can be set free so that they can have life. We're going to re- lay our reputations down. Okay, maybe they'll think I'm nuts, but I would rather risk being thought of as nuts 
if I could have the opportunity to tell them about the best news in the world. So who's God placed in your life? Don't you want them to know new life, real life, eternal life in Christ? Do you want to share that life-giving message with them? Will you pray that the Spirit would empower you? So you remember back to the beginning of the series where we started with, you know, these crazy statements that Jesus made about how it's to our advantage that he would go away and the helper would come. So we said it like this, it's better to have the Spirit within us than Jesus beside us. Okay? Would you rather be one passive, like be a, let me say it again, would you rather be a passive member in the church, like a local church where where Jesus in the flesh was actually the senior pastor. Now, I know that would be a vast improvement for me, okay? So grant that. Do you think that would be better, that there would be one church and Jesus is the pastor and he's just going to pastor everybody? Or would it be better that Jesus would send his spirit so that there would be lots of witness for Jesus and it could reach Not just come and see, come to this one church, but go and tell and take the news and plant the church, plant the gospel, plant the church all around the globe. That's better, actually, folks. So let's be filled for the sake of the mission, and let's get going. This is a huge privilege. So we're going to close with final prayer song that's a prayer, so let me pray, and then we'll sing that, and we'll be done. Lord, I pray, along with that old Anglican prayer, that what we do not know, I pray that you would teach us. And what we do not have, I pray that you would give us. And what we are not, I pray that you would make us. By the power of the gospel of Jesus, through your powerful spirit working in us and among us. Amen.